Hello, friends. Hello, friends. It's so good to have you here again. Welcome to another episode of Improv and Magic. I'm LD, and my guest today is a very talented and passionate performer, and his name is Nelson Velasquez. Nelson performs nonstop at venues and festivals all over the country. He can be seen in so many amazing shows. His most popular ones include Los Improviachis, the world's only improvised mariachi band, and The Grid, an online improv comedy show. Nelson is also the founder of Improductions LLC, a company founded to help push do-it-yourself productions in the Chicagoland area, and he also teaches at the world-famous Second City. Nelson and I had a great conversation today. He shares how he got into improv thinking he was going into stand-up comedy. He talks about his love for performing, and he discusses how important it is to share his Latin heritage in his shows. This guy is genuine, truthful, authentic, and so much fun to talk to. You are really going to love this episode. So now, let's hear from my guest, Nelson Velasquez. Folks, I'm very happy to have with me right now the amazingly talented and super awesome Nelson Velasquez, how you doing, my friend? Doing well, LD. Thanks for having me on here. Super excited to finally be on this awesome podcast that you started. So thank you. Well, thank you. You and I have been getting to know each other a little bit more because we've been running into each other a lot at the uh, Countdown Festival in uh, in Tampa. And, um, you know, you're one of those people that I admire because you do so much you're like on the go all the time. Like I'm looking up, uh, I was just looking up your Instagram before we started and I see you doing this and I see you doing that. I mean, you're constantly performing. Um, are you just one of those people that just has to keep performing a whole lot? I, I have this eternal hole in my soul as I try to fill, <laughs> fill up with like everyone's admiration and, and acceptance. So yeah, I mean, I get, I get bored easily. I kind of have like an artistic and I said it with an R an artistic uh kind of add like like i i get bored really quickly uh from my perspective um and so from my perspective like i really enjoy uh just doing something anything anything at all and that's like how i jump on things so um like downtime for me is not a good time because it's, it's literally like when all the demons come out and they're like you know, all the self-doubt comes in and, and all the all the negativity can come in and creep in my head. So I try to stay as busy as I can. So, uh, yeah, it's it's built in my DNA. And, and I've been hustling like this since, like, early in high school. And uh, I don't know how to stop at this point. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's also interesting is that not only are you a great performer, but you're also a family man. You know, you're, you're married and, uh, and you have a child. Um, how do you manage to balance out the performer and the family man? Oh, uh, well, I have three kids on, <laughs> on top of that. Oh, three. So, okay. Yeah, three. I have three. I have two teenagers and a, and a four-year-old and soon-to-be five-year-old. I have a killer wife. That is the real answer. Like, there's no way I'd be able to do as much as what I'm doing now uh, without her. Like, she is 
solid mom, a great mom, great wife. Um, that is the real secret behind behind the success. Uh, they always say that uh, behind every successful person is a successful uh, caretaker. <laughs> that is my <laughs> wife. That is my wife. She really does a, a fantastic job. So, yeah, I, I am always eternally grateful and, like, super into acknowledging her contribution to where, I, where I've, I've gone. Um, I mean, what's your, like, secret? Because, like, when I look at your Instagram, I'm like, holy smokes, like, magic, improv, like, you are all over the place podcasting, like, you're doing all this stuff. What's your secret behind it? You know, like you, I also have an amazing wife. And, <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, my wife, and, and maybe you've had the same experience, my wife, Erica, is the one who tells me, yes, you do need to do this. You know, just like with, with this podcast, uh, I was thinking about it and I finally talked to my wife and I'm like, I have this idea for this podcast, but I'm not sure if I should. And my wife is the one to really kick me in the pants and go, you know what? This is what you love to do and you know you're going to be good at it. So just do it. So really, I think we all have Erica to thank for this podcast. That's really. it. That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Erica. Uh, thank you for, for pushing uh, and I think that's that's a very cool thing to have. Uh, those of you who are in relationships, it's always important to have partners that are super supportive of what you're doing because, you know, and I know this isn't going to sound like really like romantic, but it's kind of the truth. Like when I met my wife, when we started dating, I was actually more of a musician than an actor at the time. And uh, I was in rock bands and I was recording music and I was doing all kinds of stuff. And I told her when we first started dating, I said, Look, I, I I really like you, and, and I want to be with me. Just know, though, if you get in the way between me and my music, we're over. It's like <laughs> you're gonna lose every time, and she's respected that boundary. Like my, she realizes just how intrinsic my art is to who I am as a person. Uh, if that's acting or music or drawing or whatever, like she really does like recognize it, and, and like your wife, like she's uh, very supportive. Uh, urges me to do uh, things that I wouldn't normally have the courage to do. And then does a really good job of making me make sure that like, I'm really dumping my talent and effort into places that, where they'll be appreciated. So yeah, like I, I, when I see people in relationships where the other person is just not into what you do, it breaks my heart every time. It's tough. It's really tough. Does your wife see uh, every show that you do? No. <laughs> no no at the very beginning obviously she was very supportive i mean i started improv uh well before that i you know i moved to chicago from from san antonio texas in 98 and uh then i got to rock band starting in 99 that's when we met so she she'd been to a lot of rock shows she'd been a lot of open mics uh in like the very beginning of my you know, transformation into improv and sketch comedy in 2004. So she saw a lot of the early stuff. I was kind of like, yeah, I paid my dues. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, let's start at the beginning with you, Nelson. Yeah. Uh, where did you grow up and what was growing up like for you? I, uh, I was born in Ponce, Puerto Rico. When uh, back in the 70s and then moved to San Antonio, Texas in the 80s. My wife uh, is from Puerto Rico. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. What part of the island? Uh, oh, my gosh. She's going to kill me because I don't remember. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I didn't mean to get you in trouble. 
<laughs> totally knows. He totally knows. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't remember, but she's definitely she was born in Puerto Rico for sure. Lovely, uh, cool. We got that in common. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, moved to the to to San Antonio. I lived there till again ninety eight, and then um, you know, growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood which was kind of like in a weird but wonderful sweet spot. So it was a, a neighborhood. It was a, an apartment complex uh, called Ridgecrest Apartments. Shout out to Ridgecrest. And uh, I grew up about, around a lot of Mexican, you know, blue collar families is where we lived in. Uh, my mom's Brazilian and my dad's Puerto Rican. So uh, I had a really interesting ethnic background uh, growing up there. And, and I grew up in that neighborhood. So I have a lot of Mexican sensibilities as well. Even my Spanish is very Mexican influenced. Um, the way I speak and the way I put stuff together. So it, it's funny when I speak Spanish to people, like, they're like, where are you from? <laughs> like, <laughs> they look at you and they're like, Puerto Rican. I see the big forehead, Nelson. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but like you speak differently than everybody else does. So I grew up there, uh, but we, but where we grew up, it was a blue collar uh, working class neighborhood, but it was on the, in the school district of one of the richest uh, school districts in all of Texas at the time called Alamo Heights. So I got, uh, I got a very, very good education by living in that district, but you know, all of my friends from school, it was a completely different um, aesthetic than the friends that I had from the neighborhood. So uh, that's where I lived uh, growing up. And then in like, I you know, stayed in San Antonio until 98 and then 98 moved up to Chicago to take my first job. And uh, my goal was at the time was to get out of Texas. That was my simple goal. Like I got three job offers out of college and I was like, got a ruler out. Remember rulers? Remember maps? Remember the yeah, flat maps? Yeah. yeah. I used those. Yeah, back then when we had this thing called paper. Yeah. 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 It's called an atlas. If you're not sure, it's like a whole book of maps. Um, mm. So I pulled it out and literally looked at all the job offers and I measured from San Antonio to each of those places. <laughs> Did Which you one really? was the furthest one? And Chicago was the furthest one. I was like, that's where I'm going at this point why did you really want to get out of texas um i i hadn't really gone anywhere honestly that's the real reason it was just like i kind of needed to establish my identity i was my brother was in the air force um i love my brother uh he accomplished a lot my dad was very you know traditional like get in the military you know follow your brother's footsteps kind of thing um you know i was a musician at the time so and i still am but at the time, that was very important to me. So I kind of wanted to start over, just wanted to establish who I was as a, as a young man, because I was living kind of with like this expectation from my father to be a bunch of other things that were not me at the time. And so I just needed to kind of escape all that and be like, no, like, I really know what I'm doing. And at 21, I really didn't know what I was doing. I thought I did, but I didn't. But at the time, I thought I did. And I headed out and was just like, I, I want to start over. And if I fail you know, six months, I'll move back. It was kind of my thing. And, you know, it, luckily I haven't failed yet. I haven't moved back home mom yet. So, uh, keep my room open. So the dream is still alive of you <laughs> never going back to Texas. <laughs> you know, what's weird about that though. And like, people ask me about that. Like, do you like living? Do you like Texas? Like I'm institutionalized to love Texas. Like if you live in Texas, the school system, you know, the, 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 the society, like 
they do a really good job of reinforcing your love of Texas. Don't mess with Texas. Look them horns. Like, there's so much propaganda when you live in Texas. So I have this weird love for Texas. And I have a pull. Every time I go back, I have this fancy, this idea that, like, I'm going to stay. And then their government does all kinds of weird, dumb stuff that I don't agree with. And I'm like, nah, I'm never going back. I'm good. Nah, I'm good. I, I love you, Texas, but I love you. You know what I mean? I get you. Yeah. Totally get you. Um, when did performing become a part of your life? When did you become interested in being a performer? Uh, the real time or like the professional time? Um, how about the real time? Let's start there. Oh, let's see. This would be second grade. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Second grade. Again, growing up in San Antonio, uh, I was going to become in second grade decided I would be the next reincarnation of Eddie Murphy. That was my really, yeah, I was a big Eddie Murphy fan, SNL Eddie Murphy fan. And I just got into breakdancing too. So I was also, I was going to be Eddie Murphy and ozone from breaking. (laughs) <laughs> and so that that it started there i actually you know i performed at my parents parties my parents would you know i don't know if you you went through this as well like my parents would have these parties invite all the friends over and they would call me out of my room and they'd throw a record on and i'd break dance in front of i loved it i loved performing for people and you know everyone would take pictures and they would dance with me and i would dance with all the old ladies at the party and they got a real big kick out of it. And like, ever since then, I've been involved in some kind of performance art ever since. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. What was it about performing that really made you feel like this is something that you wanted to do as a profession? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I, I always say I have half kiddingly say like, I have this hole in my soul, but I kind of do. Like, I think we all do. We all have this, like, we get a charge from people's accolades, right? And and that part of it. I don't think I got really serious about like making money off of it ever, really. Like I have a day job, right? I, I'm, I wish I could pay the bills just performing. Um, but uh, I, I think where when I got really serious about it was because when I started getting a uh, Zen-like connection with, the world like i started feeling like this is no longer just me trying to get people's um compliments or, or people's love it started turning into i'm creating something here and it connected me with the rest of the world with some creative ether and i loved that connection and started getting deeper into what that connection meant for me have, have you ever gone surfing no i haven't you need to go do that especially being from florida I'm sure the waves are great uh, on the Gulf side, I'm guessing. Uh, but if you ever go surfing, I, I didn't really understand it until I went surfing. I went, I love to go to San Diego in California. Um, and I'm not a great surfer at all, but I love going anyway. And one of the things that I enjoyed was like, you go out, you paddle out like half a mile out and you're exhausted by the time you get there. And then you're sitting on your board and you're watching the waves break as they're coming in and trying to figure out which is the right way for you to ride to get back to back to the uh, beach. And so while you're sitting there, you don't like have time to think about anything really, because like, you're thinking, where are the sharks? Where's the wave? Am I going to drown? Where's the coral? Like you're thinking of like all these things that could happen right there. So you got to kind of be very, 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 very much in the present when you're doing it. 
And then when you find the wave that you're going to catch and you turn around and you start paddling and you catch the wave, the board locks into the wave. It is, but you can't do anything about it. Once it's in, you it's difficult to not get it to like write it out. It's, it's there. And so you're riding this wave and you have this emotion. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Uh, you have this, this emotional connection with the water and with the shore and with everything. And it's like, for the, you know, maybe 15 seconds that you're riding from the ocean to the beach, it's Zed. It is, mm. the world makes sense at that point. And then you fall off and hopefully you've attached your board to your leg and you can retrieve it. And then you do it again. And I never understood. I watched Point Break. I watched Baywatch. I watched all these California movies about these surfer people and I didn't get it till I did it. And I was like, now I know why people go chase waves. I, it, like, it makes sense to me. And I think when I got serious about it was that I reached that Zen moment, the same exact feeling when I would be doing performance art and you would lock in with that creative, you know, Zen moment. And you're like, oh, this makes sense. I would need more of that. That's my drug. That's what I want to achieve every time I'm up on stage. That is so amazing. I'll share with you why I really am not excited to go surfing and it's only because of this reason alone my wife is a really big fan of shark week okay and so every time they play shark week on discovery channel every year of course there's that one documentary that talks about surfers going out and being bit by sharks and being horribly uh mangled so that's the one reason why i haven't tried it i recommend batman shark repellent if that's if that helps you any just let me know uh, okay I, if you I, got a supply i'll be happy to buy some. <laughs> i'll send you some i'll bring some next week uh yeah like I, I get it i absolutely i you know it's weird though like that chasing that zen is almost worth it i, I think i'll feel differently once i get bitten <laughs> but you know but you're so right though about that about seriously though having that zen of like just performing and you know i've definitely felt that many times and i think we all do as as performers we feel that connection that we make especially in improv where we had no idea what happened and then it happened and it is a it is a drug there is a high that comes from this that i totally live for and it seems like you really live for that too yeah i i just think that like yeah a lot of people ask have you have you been asked this question a lot of people ask me this question have you done the show where it's like cool ld we need you to drive like 50 miles to somewhere and we're going to give you 12 and a half minutes up on stage, but we're going to cut you at 10 <laughs> and, and we're not going to pay you. Have you done those shows? I've had a few of those. Yeah. yeah. And I still do those shows. Like, you know, part of it is the economics of where we're at right now. But the other part is, is like, you kind of have to be about this life. And that's what I tell people. I'm like, yeah, I'll drive to Chicago. I live, I live just outside Chicago. Right. So um, I'll drive to Chicago to go do, you know, a 15 minute set. And, you know, not get paid and pay for parking and deal with like people and all that stuff to just exercise my ability to tap into that. And, and I think that's like, you got to kind of have to be about that life. Like you have to see the the bigger picture. I don't know if that's a better way of thinking about it, but like there is more to this than just, you know, entertaining an audience. There's definitely a personal connection that we all have and we're all seeking it and tap into it, you know, in a very similar way I've noticed. 
Yeah, I remember early on I was doing a gigs for free after I got out of college, and it was something that my mom could not really understand. My mom was a um, a very strong, passionate Cuban mother who believed that I shouldn't be working for free. And she was always very supportive of me, but she always felt like, why are you doing stuff for free? Why are you doing stuff for free? And at that time, I didn't look at it that way. I didn't look at, I didn't look at it as these are non-paid gigs. I looked at it as another part of my experience of performing. And, you know, it, I like to describe it as doing reps. You know, the more reps you do, the stronger of a performer you become. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. I'm with you hundred percent. Yeah. If I only uh, had an opportunity to do a five minute show, I will treasure those five minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I did a gig in San Antonio recently. Um, uh, my improvised mariachi band, Los Improviachis, we played there. Uh, we were the kind of the headliner for the night. And then I got to play with the, I got invited to play with the, with the, like a rock band, like an acoustic rock band that night. And it was like five oh, wow. minutes, but I was like happy as a clam. It was like, Oh, I got to play. This is cool. And then one of the other teams, one of their players couldn't make it. And they asked me to play. And it was another 15 minutes. So like, like uh, Al, uh, Al Pacino in every given Sunday, you fight for every inch every scrap of our yard that's what i felt like like every minute that i get to perform is just one more opportunity to like reach that goal i'm reaching out to amazing amazing (laughs) so how did you discover improv specifically great story remember what i told you about my second grade (laughs) aspirations of becoming the next eddie murphy so i did uh so before that in in my uh former civilian life uh i was a, a member uh of a of an it company very large one and uh they flew us all out for a team meeting in charlotte north carolina and we went and we went to a, a dinner to meet the entire team to hang out so we're at dinner and somehow we got on some subject i can't remember what it was but at some point i started talking and i spoke for roughly 45 minutes and the only thing I remembered from that experience was that the entire time people were laughing and mm. it felt good. And I went, Hey, I think I just did stand up by accident. Uh, <laughs> wow. This is awesome. Such a great feeling. So the day I got back from there, I was like, I've got to get training. Like this is a sign. And so I, uh, typed into google and at the time google was not um it it would show you some of the results when you would type into google like some of the like the top four results so i typed in um uh, what was it stand up training chicago and the first thing that popped up was the second city and the only thing I, i read was like in the search results was like home of comedy grades such as John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, I know them. They're funny. They're all SNL, so they must be all comedians. I did no research whatsoever on the Second City. I found the phone number. I called them up. And I was like, hi, uh, I, I'm interested in taking some classes. And they're like, great. What are you looking to take a class in? I said, well, uh, I want to do comedy. And they're like, okay, improv. Cool. We'll send you up for the improv class. I said, okay. Like, because I'm thinking the improv, like stand-up comedy, you know, places, which to right. this day, I still do not know why they're called that. I, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but 
it still confuses me. So, you know, it's the improv, something, oh, improv, like stand-up comedy, like doing it at the improv. That's what I thought. So it angers me just as much as it (laughs) angers you. (laughs) And so I signed up and I showed up to the first day of class and, um, the, the, the teacher, she was like, Hey, welcome to improv one. Uh, congratulations. Uh, I'm going to teach you how to all become actors. And I raised my hand and I'm like, ah, I was like, uh, no, I'm here to learn how to be funny. And she says, don't worry, you will be. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and that, that happened in 2004. And then I've thousands and thousands of dollars later, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you went into this expecting that you were going to be a, a stand-up comedian. Yeah. At what point during your training at Second City did it become revealed to you that this is something special and there's definitely more here? I think around my second class, my like second half of my class. So in the second city curriculum at the time, it's, it's still very similar to this now, but at the time, like the first class is like, Hey, get out of your head. Like let's do stuff together and unlearn what society has placed on you for judgment. The second class is more of like character development right? Using your body, character development, uh, establishing wants and needs. Uh, And I was given license to play characters that I knew very well, finally. And I was like, cool, I could be my mom, I could be my dad, my brother, guys from work. Oh, like, this is awesome. And I get to do it without getting, you know, anyone in trouble. Like, this is cool. Uh, So it was around that second class, like, I was like, all right, like, this is fun. And I'm meeting cool people and, you know, again, all the reasons why we fall in love with, with improvisation is because it gives us a license to do all the cool collaborative stuff without judgment and fear. And so that was very intriguing to me. And and coming from a musician's you know background, you know, the music world is not that way. Like it's very, uh, it's very singular. It's a very singular approach to things. And, um, you know, I was also trying to do stand-up at the same time. So I kind of, like, equate the music world and stand-up kind of in the same thing. Like, it's it's a different animal. You're kind of looking for yourself most of the time, uh, unless you find just a, a really good group of people that you can really bond with. But it's very, for lack of a better word, cutthroat. It's, it's very, it's difficult. It's a difficult scene to uh, establish relationships in because, you know, you're trying to be as, just as good as the guy next to you at all times so when i got the improv it was literally like we're doing ensemble work so the there's something greater than you as a musician and so i really really like attached myself that resonated very well with me Hmm. when you arrived at second city did you realize at the time that this is the second city nah (laughs) nah i i didn't really understand what i was like what I was a part of really until I was in the conservatory program. Like, Mm. so the conservatory program, for those of you who don't know is uh, at the second city is kind of the more advanced improvisation um, uh, curriculum there. So uh, the intro classes that they have is just to get you the point that you can improvise. uh, It's about a year's worth of training to get you kind of ready to delve into it in other avenues. The conservatory program is more about, taking improvisation as a tool to write scripted material. And that's what Second City in itself is more known for. They're more known for their sketch reviews uh, than they are necessarily their improvisation as a product. 
So that's the you know at the time when I took it, it was five terms long at eight weeks apiece. So another year roughly of of um, of improvisation, and and we got deeper into you know the beginning classes showed you what to do. The later classes then got into why, right? Mm. And that's when I started going, wait a minute, there's more to this. Like, who is this Viola Spolin person? And who's this Gary Schwartz guy? And who's this Ellie May? And and like, like, who are all these people? Like, you know, um, they're out there. Um, So yeah, that's when I started kind of realizing like, holy crap, I'm a part of something much bigger uh, than I thought I was. And then, you know, at the time, this is pre-pandemic. At the time, everybody's like talking about SNL and doing showcases. And at the time, the Second City was like putting people on boats and and just, you know um, cruise lines and stuff like that. So it was like, oh, like this is real. Like you can make you can live off this. Like, oh, how cool is that? So that starts you know sparking my interest at the time. Did you ever do any of their uh, touring companies? I never did. No. I never did. I the closest I ever got in the in the system, that's what I call it, uh, was that I got to be a part of their um, uh, outreach and diversity ensemble as an understudy at the time. So it was called. Uh, it was dubbed Brown Co. at the time uh, because we had Red Co., Green Co., all these co companies, touring companies, mm. and we kind of like it just adopted the name of Brown Co. So if you ever hear that, it's the outreach and diversity program. So I was in it. I was in it for a couple of times. Uh, doing it uh that's about the closest i ever got uh currently i've actually toured a lot more uh because now i'm part of their second city works program and um that's their business to business arm where they're using improvisational techniques in an applied fashion for corporate or uh personal development and so i've actually been touring a lot more uh around the nation with them than i ever did when i was actually training there Hmm. You know, a question I've always wanted to ask someone who does touring, what is the touring life like? Is it very much like the rock and roll lifestyle? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, I think it is. Like the, the tours that I've been on musically, um, you know, I toured North and North America, well, not all North America, United States and Canada uh, in 96 with a drum corps. Um, so that oh, was wow. that was a, a whole other like experience. And I did some small tours with my rock bands. So, yeah, it's a lot of, like, it's nicer, like, at least with the gigs that I've been doing, they're a lot nicer. Like, I'm not riding a bus, and, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not sleeping on the bus or in a gymnasium or on someone's couch every time. <laughs> like, I'm getting hotels or motels, you know, for the most part. But I think it's very much like that. Like, the whole idea of, like, I'm going into a hotel and I'm unpacking my stuff day in, day out. This is my existence. Is this, like very you know non-personal space that where i rest my head so that i could go do my other stuff later you know you do a lot of prep um you're doing prep in your in your hotel room in the lobby you know and then you go do your gig and the gig itself is a ton of fun but it's only maybe two hours or four hours of your time and then the rest of it is either traveling you know or getting ready for the next gig or whatever so it's this weird like mundane existence that you kind of get trapped into and it's and then you start going like oh now i kind of understand why people are like i'm never going to tour again or i you know i can't handle this i'm too i'm away from my family all this time because it's just you don't want to live out of the suitcase you don't want to continue like having to um um give so much time to it 
And so I think it's a lot like that. I, again, as an as a you know more of a of a elder statesman in the space, you know it's definitely different than one touring in the '90s, where like I was very limited on budget. I'm eating you know gas station food. Uh, I'm bar. You know I am flirting with people to get free things on the road that I need. <laughs> like I did a lot of like begging and scraping when I was doing touring in the '90s, and now it's like okay, cool. Like I can buy a meal. This is nice. Yeah. Mm. Can I go back to that existence? I don't think so. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you start to do after Second City? I know you're still kind of a part of it, but after you were done with the classes, what did you do afterwards? So interesting. Um, for me, it's an interesting path. This is a path I share with my students a lot. I am fiercely an independent artist, meaning that I, when I was taking classes at the Second City, by my third class, I was already a part of a uh, established a theater company in Chicago, a Salsation Theater Company. And um, through Salsation, they were a Latino-based uh, theater company, and still are. Through Salsation, I learned, that's when I started doing my first touring, like, was with them. I was, in, I was still very green to the entire process, but we had to learn how to, how to write shows, act in them, produce them, direct them, advertise for them. And that got me started already halfway through my intro training of like, oh, like I'm already doing shows. Like I don't need to be a part of an institution in order for me to perform. And so from there, by the time I was I was in the conservatory, I was in like six groups at that point. Every one of them was independent. Every one of them. So um that was where my trajectory kind of led me to like, it, you know, it, without sounding too salty, um, you know, the, 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 from an institution perspective, there's a game, there's a game to everything that it, that it takes you for you to um, achieve some of your goals. Right. Um, some of the games require you to, uh, you have to hang out at a theater long enough, or you have to know somebody um, and you have to figure out what those intricacies were. And at that point, by the time I figured out that there was a game to everything, I was kind of like, I'm already performing. Why do I need to play your game? Like, you know, don't get me wrong. I still to this day want to be accepted by, I want every institution out there to be like, I want to hire Nelson. I would love that. But I recognize that in order for me to consistently perform and consistently do the kind of work that I like to do, I was going to have to put my own shows up. So I dumped as much time and effort as I could to getting Salsation further along um, to get my own theater company going in productions um, and, you know, joining all these smaller independent groups and producing work consistently. So that way, at least I was working while I was auditioning for the bigger things and the institution stuff at the same time. But I always knew that like, even because I don't want to, I don't want to play the game. I'm bad at it. I'm not good at it. So it's probably, probably part of the reason I don't want to go about it, but, but it, I knew that I would work. And Chicago is a fantastic place. If you just want to work, it's got a lot of opportunities there for you to be able to, to just do what you got to do to get your reps in, like you said earlier. And so that's where I dumped the most of my effort. And so I finished the Second City programs, oh man, 2008, nine, somewhere around there. I didn't get hired at the Second City until 2018. So I spent a lot of time doing the festival circuits, producing my own stuff. And I bring that sensibility back. And I'm like, look, you know, this is my experience with it. 
I encourage you to find something of your own, something that you love, something that speaks to you as an artist. And don't let anyone take that away from you. That is going to be your bedrock. That's what's going to keep you going late at night when you don't get those other auditions or you don't get those other opportunities. You're going to be like, oh, at least I can do this. And so that's where, um, that's, you know, why I'm doing all this stuff continuously. Just, it keeps me going, bro. What's interesting, you and I are very similar in that regard because I'm also very much an independent artist. You know, I don't have agents or companies telling me what to do. I mean, everything I am, I am a fully one-man operation. Even with this podcast, you know, I'm a total one-person operation. And I think it's interesting that nowadays we definitely see a lot more artists becoming more independent artists Mm -hmm. and not wanting to go through – you know, like, like you described going through the whole game. Do you see that a lot more independent artists? I do. I have seen, especially post pandemic. Um, it's been interesting. Oh, for sure. It's been interesting. I mean, everybody kind of clamped, figured out like, Hey, I've got TikTok, YouTube and, and all this other social media outlet out there, you know, Instagram, all that. And I can produce my own work. And not only that, I can make money doing this by putting some effort into it. And I think that really exploded during the pandemic when we were all cooped up in our homes and we all, all kind of figured out like, how do I adjust? I used to go out and do this stuff. I have to adjust this for what I do at home. Luckily we had the internet at the time. If we didn't have the internet, I don't know what we would have done, but um, yeah, absolutely. Like there's a lot of, like, I feel like I'm a little bit out of touch uh, when I look at the amount of independent work that I've been seeing lately. I'm like, dude, I got to go see more shows because I don't know who any of these people are. So it's coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> so I think it's gotten, it's exploded especially the last year, I feel like it's really gotten big. Yeah. Well, certainly the pandemic forced a lot of us to become independent artists. And I've also thought the same thing that, that you pondered. If we didn't have the internet during COVID, how the hell would have we survived? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. Like I try to like imagine what it was like. It wasn't, you know, the Spanish flu uh, that wasn't really from Spain. Uh, <laughs> whatever um you know was it 1918 right and like they yeah. didn't have that and like they had to do social distancing and they had to do quarantine and all that stuff i'm like man what would that that would have sucked that would have sucked so hard yeah nothing to watch at home just your family to talk to oh goodness let me get this straight i gotta read oh jeez <laughs> books oh <laughs> Margaret, we're going to have to go to the bookstore again. <laughs> God bless. I guess I'll go outside and do some landscaping. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> um, how did the pandemic uh, affect you? So, good question. I So, uh, f- I will put a disclaimer on <laughs> what I'm going to say. So, <laughs> I, hey, I know it affected a lot of people, and, and my heart goes out to those folks. It, it, people lost their lives over this. People lost their livelihoods. Um so, so shout out to those folks. I'm sorry. Sorry that happened. Me personally, I did, I flourished during the pandemic. Um, I was already working remotely again in, in my other life. I do, I do IT work. So I had already been set up with the means to be able to work from home. So like, that was not a big deal for me. And then um, because I'm a musician, I have all this equipment in my house as well. So transitioning to you know um, online work was very simple for me when the pandemic hit uh, i we just finished our last show for in productions uh we did like a, a 
March 20th, I believe, of 2020, when they started, when they shut down Illinois. Like, I was like, what? Shut that whole state? Like, how do you, dude, how do you do that? Uh, and I remember mourning for four days straight. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do. Like, I, I, you know, I just, my mind was blown. And then literally on that fifth day, I was like, cool, time to go and get online. How do we change what we're doing? And I dumped all my effort during the pandemic of transitioning what we were doing in the real world to online stuff and, and connecting with all kinds of people across, you know, the, the United States and the world really of like, cool. Like I met, um, you know, uh, people who were, who were trying VR stuff. I met people who were doing uh, live streams, uh, you know, and OBS and all this stuff that started coming up out of the woodwork. And because I spent so much time trying to get my company and my people trying to get them to work, it was, it was, it was supposed to be two months. If you, I don't know if you remember that. It was supposed to be like, eh, two months, it'll be over. That's what I remember. Yeah, right? Yeah. Two months, it'll be over. I was like, okay, we'll, we'll keep working, and then we'll be back at it. And it became two years. And I spent so much time doing that and learned so much that, you know, I was performing, teaching, producing again. And so that never stopped. Uh, I gained a whole bunch of new skills online. And I met a whole bunch of new people and made a whole bunch of contacts. You know, Justin Kelly, who, who we spoke of uh, about the countdown. You know, I had met them before the pandemic because they do a workshop in my area. And then, uh, you know, I was a part of their online community and, and you know, a Rich Stone and, and you know, a, a bunch of other improv famous people. And, uh, you know, I was really getting into it at that point. And then, um, you know, I was gigging. I was making money. Like, it was weird, dude. And, like... This whole time I'm like flourishing and like, you know, there's like the whole world's falling apart around me. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I look back to that era fondly, not because, not because of what happened and how it was handled. Uh, could definitely have been handled completely differently and, and much better. But me personally, like I kept my job, my family was fed, I was getting gigs. I was still engaging in the, in the community and still doing things. Hmm. Well, again, you and I are also similar in that regard because I kind of experienced the same thing during the pandemic. I, I'm usually the type of person that likes to see the, even with something as bad as COVID, I do like to see the silver lining. And, you know, for me in 2020, when we were all quarantined, it was an opportunity for me to really get back into my love of magic because I had kind of left it alone for a while, but now I had all this time to myself at home and I'm like, you know what? It's time for me to take the opportunity to practice again. And so my magic has been back up ever since. So I think there's always a silver lining for all of these disasters and bad things that happen. Yeah. And so, so that's interesting to me because I just automatically assumed like magicians can't stop practicing. Otherwise your magic is stale uh, at that point. So, so when did you like really, when did you stop? And then when did you start up again? I stopped around approximately well i never really stopped but there was a point where i where i changed it from uh, a goal to a hobby mm -hmm. so it's not like i threw it away completely i always had cards around and every now and then uh every once in a while i would fiddle around with with cards a little bit um but it stopped becoming a big goal at around i'd say maybe 2005 ish roughly um, but you know, every now I, I've, I've always still been a big fan of magic. Don't get me wrong. Every time there's a magic TV show, I'm watching it. And I was, I was, I never stopped being a fan of magic. And then when the pandemic happened, I needed stuff to do. 
And that's when it clicked to me that I should, I should try to go back to this again. And this is also tied to the fact that in 2020, the other weird thing that happened to me was I turned 40. Mm -hmm. And I remember waking up that morning thinking, wow, I'm 40. (laughs) And yeah. And, and then just came this thought of, you know, what, what's going to happen if I turn 70 or 80, if I make it that long and having to ask myself, what if, Mm. and that became a thought that terrified me. And that's when I determined that I'm going to go ahead and actually try to do what I love to do. And even if nothing comes from it, at least when I get to my seventies and eighties, I can look back and say, I still gave it my all. And I still gave it a shot. No regrets. Absolutely. Right. No regrets. No regrets. <laughs> How did Los Improviachis got started? Yeah. Uh, fun, fun origin story on that one. So at the time, I was the artistic director for Salsation Theater Company. So this was, was uh, 2010, 2011, somewhere around there. And uh, there is a group uh, out of Chicago named Pimprov. So the, the whole idea is like this name sounds, it's improvising pimps. Uh, yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you've never seen the show, um, it's when this started, uh, the whole show was playing on the stereotypes of pimps, but not necessarily the bad effects of pimps, right? Uh, it's, right, done in right. Je- it's done in jest, and, and there are there are um, there are some stereotypes that they take and some some um, aesthetics that they take, but it's really all improv. It's all scenic based. There's no slapping of women or you know asking for money all the time. Like it's it's not a black exploitation version of pimping. So um, with that said, I was watching their show as a guest. And I was sitting there um, and I was expanding the programming that Salsation was doing at the time, because at the time we were really known for sketch comedy. But when we started back in 1998, which I was, I wasn't a part of it then I didn't join until 2005. Um, But back then they started off as a area, as a, as a group to provide um, Latinos a chance to perform and to learn and to, and to, get some reps in because at the time it was very white male dominated um, art form. And for the most part, it still is uh, in a lot of regards. Right. So, Oh, I'm shocked. So, and you know, I know, <laughs> I'm just saying, um, so I could spend hours. Uh, so, so with that said, um, you know, so I'll say I was, I was 2011 and I, I was very ambitious and was just like, man, we need more programming. Like we can't be just known for one thing. So I started, uh, a regular improv group. I started, kept the sketch going. We started a video sketch group. And then I wanted a musical group. And I had, I had been arguing with, with the Pirates at B when I first joined Salsation. I was like, why don't we have a musical group? Because I'm a musician, right? And they kept fighting me, fighting me, fighting me, fighting me. So then I started watching, I'm at a improv show and I'm watching what's going on. And this, this one group of, of improvisers, non-Latino improvisers come out and they have a Latino name I remember that did not had nothing to do with Spanish or, or any kind of Latin American um, uh, culture. And the dude comes out with a sombrero on and I went, okay, this is weird. And he, he had a bit where he sang something, but it was complete gibberish and he kept going and I was sat there and then the idea popped in my brain and I went, wait a minute, I can do that, but I could do it better. 
and hold on, wait a minute. And so I've wa- I stopped watching the show. I was already in my head planning out what Los Improviatis would turn into and what was the whole idea behind the, 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 the group. And so I sat there and walked out of that show. It was the whole idea baked. And uh, I held auditions. A few weeks later, I held auditions. Within the first three months of those auditions, I fired every single person that I hired. <laughs> really? Fired every one of them. I, I, I called the Improviatis uh, 1.0. Uh, fired every one of them because they didn't understand my vision and they didn't they weren't living up to the expectations that I have for this group. I was like, this is a brilliant idea. Um, you know, and um, for those of you who don't know what Los Improviachis is about, Los Improviachis is a, um, it is an homage <laughs> to mariachi. It is, we are not mariachis. We are comedians first. So making that straight, it's an homage to mariachi uh, using mariachi aesthetic. Um, it's an audience interactive show. So the audience, uh, if you've ever gone to any restaurant where they have mariachis, you know, mariachis roaming around playing for tips, uh, things of that nature, um, you know, we kind of play on that. And so the whole idea is that there is improvisation going on, but we're incorporating the audience as much as possible in every single game that we play. And, you know, we we have a, a lot of, we, we spoof some stereotypes, so we obliterate others, uh, we have a, a lot of fun. It is not a complete improv show. Uh, there are some scripted elements. We actually do play some mariachi songs in our in our set, um, and, but we make up a lot of songs while we're at it. And so it's somewhat musical improv. It's somewhat improv. It's somewhat sketch because we do script out certain things. Uh, and it's actually a lot of stand-up too because we do a ton of crowd work while we're doing the, the show. So um, yeah, so uh, 2.0 came along and 2.0 consisted of me just hand-grabbing people and going like, I've worked with you before. I trust you. I think you would understand what I'm looking for, where I want to go. And I just started grabbing people. And it's remained that way ever since. We've had a number of people join Los Improviachis over the years, come and go. Uh, but it's never been through an audition process. It's literally been like, hey, I've seen, you know, I feel that you would fit the vision that we're looking for. And you have something of value to add. We're going to pluck you in and we're going to let's see if it works. And if it doesn't work, cool. But if it does work, you know, then we'll ask you to join more formally. I'm curious about the 1.0 version. When you said that people were just not understanding your vision, what was it that you think they just weren't getting? Um, the the biggest one was that it was a serious group with a non-serious mission. So um, I was having people like, for me, it was like, you know, hey, you need to like actually like learn songs. Hey, you might need to learn some Spanish while you're at it. You may need to learn a single song in Spanish every once in a while. Mm. Hey, you got to do research. Like, here's a Wikipedia article I need you to go read and understand. Uh, so, like, I put all that together. They wouldn't do it. Um, some people would just miss rehearsals, thinking that they could just like, oh, I'll just show up and do things. Uh, I had one girl who um, was a great actor, man, really good actor. And uh, we had our second rehearsal. And then she, I'm like, I call her up. I'm like, where are you? She's like, oh, I thought it was an optional rehearsal. And I'm like, I just sent you like 35 emails with all this information. And I'm like, you must be at rehearsal kind of thing. And I, I just didn't get a strong sense of, of that 1.0 cast of like, like, like I was serious about being authentic. And again, paying homage, not being a caricature of what we were doing, but paying mm. homage to these other items while having a lot of fun doing it. And I think 
that's where I was just like, you know what? Like this, I'm going to be more frustrated than anything else and did not want to do this. So you've been all let go. And I did bring back one. I brought back one person from the 2.0. Uh, I brought her back. Um, Joy, uh, I brought her back because like, I think she got it. And then she, she was invaluable, um, especially in the early years of Wilson Braviacci's. Uh, love her to this day. So yeah, it, it's interesting because like I see um, improvised Shakespeare companies and I, I kind of say it's kind of analogous to that. Like you can't do improvised Shakespeare if you don't know Shakespeare. You've right. got to you got to do all that research first. Yeah, you might be a great actor and you might be a, a fantastic improviser and, and funny, but if you can't get the tropes, so you don't understand the the pentameter or don't understand why you're using a couplet before the end of the scene, like there are things that you're trying to grab onto. If you don't have an appreciation for that, then this is going to be a lot hokier than probably we want it to be. Yeah, you know it's interesting uh, at my home theater at just the funny we also have a uh, a Shakespeare improv class. And a lot of the class uh, involves doing research. You know, it's one of the few classes that we have where students actually have homework to do because you're absolutely right. I mean, you can do Shakespeare improv and you can do hip hop improv and even musical improv, but it's a lot more than just, well, just get up on stage and just wing it. You have to kind of know the world that you're entering. Otherwise you look like you're not taking it seriously and the audience sees it too. The audience can tell that that's not your world. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, tonight, in fact, uh, right after this uh, interview, we're, we're going to go do a show. Uh, and we're doing a street festival that we did last year. And um, we're going to literally be roaming around a block party <laughs> doing what we do. And again, like like it, part of like what we learned from last year was like there was an expectation that we were going to kind of what I call uh, park and blow. That's what we call it in, in drum corps, right? You park it, you stand at a microphone and you play. And mm-hmm. um, that expectation, we had to adjust our show. We're going to adjust our show tonight to kind of do that for them because like it was like, they love the idea of us roaming around, but they really wanted to see like, could we play and could we sing and could we do stuff? So we're going to try that tonight. Hopefully it goes well. Yeah. The name Park and Blow sounds really cool. I just love that name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you ever like if you ever gone to a, a marching band um place and you see them, you know, going all over the field and when they stop in a block right in the very front of the front of the field and they play as loud as they can and just blow blow your head off with it. That's what we call a park and blow. Nice, nice. You know, one thing that I love about so much of what you do is that you unapologetically create shows that are purely uh, Latino Mm -hmm. and you're not afraid to show in your shows how proud you are of your Hispanic heritage. Why is that an important thing for you to incorporate in your performances? Uh, Great question. Thank you. That's very nice for you to say. Uh, um, (laughs) I I think part of that again comes from that indie um, spirit that I have, I think it's important that you need to draw from your experiences and your whole truth, whatever your truth is, right? What is Mm -hmm. your truth and what is your upbringing? Um, And I think that um, at least at the time when I started figuring this stuff out for myself, you know, the institutions themselves are pretty white, you know, they're not built for people who look like us. And, um, you know, in order for us to, make any kind of inroads we are going to have to establish an identity and that we that 
that is strong enough that it makes financial sense for them to have us. You know what I'm saying? So I think yeah. like have that's where it started for me. I, I you know again I joined Salsation early in my career. I didn't really have a true appreciation until later of just like how important Salsation was for Chicago and and quite frankly the United States from an improvisational perspective, like how important it was to have that avenue to get there. So I, you know, have a, um, again, I mentioned, you know, my background is so diverse in the sense of a Puerto Rican father, Brazilian mother, Mexican neighborhood and upbringing. And I, for years was uh, asked, especially in classes, like I wasn't really encouraged to demonstrate any of my Latino side. And when I would, I would get not reprimanded is not the right word, but I would sense this. Yeah, that was cute. Can you not do that? Cause it makes the rest of us uncomfortable. Mm. I got a lot of that feeling from people at the time. And again, I was like, cool. Well, when I'm not in class and when I'm not here, I can do it all I want. But when I'm here, like I, I can't. And that it took me a while to negotiate what that balance is. And for lack of a better term of just like, you know, it, it, I recognize, you know, we have a lot of repressed, you know, anxieties about uh, race and race relations in the United States. And um, we're getting better at it, right? We still got a ways to go. And and I think from that perspective, especially the early 2000s, like it was, it made me angry enough that I was just like, you know what, everything I do now, is going to have some kind of element in there of like, this is my truth. Like, I've probably dug more into my Latino background in the last, you know, I'm probably close to eight, seven, nine years now, I dug in even deeper and deeper and deeper because like, I can't, I, I, I can't say I'm not the quintessential Puerto Rican. I'm not the quintessential Brazilian or Mexican. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of this weird amalgamation. So I'm trying to reconnect with that part of myself and I can't deny it. You know, when I'm in a room of, you know, 15 improvisers and I'm one of two people of color, it's very apparent that like, I'm different than everybody else in the room. And so um, I, I feel like I need to have that be very strong, especially when I start going to places like Miami or, or Florida or New York, um, you know, that do have more, a bit more diversity in what they do, especially from a Latino perspective. I got to be more sure, more concrete in the way I present myself and I present my art so that it's, it's accepted because uh, it's a double-edged sword as well. It's like, um, you know, I am not the most, uh, uh, I am not 100% fluent in Spanish. I'm pretty good. I've gotten a lot better over the years. Um, I still am, I would not consider myself, you know, I'm more, a little bit more the conversational at this point with my Spanish. Um, so I, I have to tread that line of like, uh, in, in with for my non-Latino brothers and sisters, getting acceptance from them of like, this is a part of who I am. And then now I have this whole, whole other culture that I kind of have to gain acceptance for as well. Of like, hey, I now I have to be Latin enough to let you know that this art that I'm a part of, I'm a part of this diaspora that we're talking about, even if I don't measure up in the sense of like a traditionalist native uh, Puerto Rican kid or Brazilian kid or Mexican kid, like I don't fit those stereotypes, but I, the stereotypes, those categories, but I want to be a part of it and I am a part of it. You need to accept that, that this is something that's valid and something that's a part of our culture collectively. So, so I feel like a lot of the times I'm straddling two worlds, trying to gain, gain acceptance from both of them and trying to make it as authentic as possible. And that's why I dump so much effort into being uh, putting it in your face of like, 
yeah, this is real. This is who I am. This is what I do. And, and hopefully, you know, in the end of the day, hopefully it's something that you want to watch and enjoy. Well, certainly within the last couple of years, there has been a lot, a lot more discussion of shows being more inclusive and embracing more Hispanic culture and more black culture and more Asian culture, more LGBTQ culture and, and all of that. Do you think we've really gotten ourselves into a much better point or do you think we still have ways to go? Yes to both. (laughs) yeah yes to both i mean that's the short answer i I think it has definitely gotten better uh it it has and uh, you know again pre-pandemic around 2014 in chicago is when i really started noticing the amount of inclusion the efforts that people were putting into inclusion and diversity um you know not to say that it wasn't being done just to say that like i feel like whatever seeds and whatever forever efforts people were putting in for all those years before were finally kind of like trickling in and started seeing more diversity and inclusion um, in the groups and, and seeing more people to get a chance. Um, and then, uh, you know, an unfortunate era, but it had to happen. Uh, the, 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 the Me Too movement, I think, further accelerated that because now not mm-hmm. only are we having to reevaluate um, our our interpersonal relationships and the way we treat each other from a, from a gender perspective and from a society perspective, like how we treat each other and power positions started getting into things like, you know, Hey, you're taking advantage of your position um, and you're abusing that position in some way, shape or form Um, that started coming into play. And I think because we started reevaluating that starting with the me too movement, then we started getting into all these other offshoot issues that needed to be addressed about like, okay, well, look, you've got, uh, you've got a theater, um, you know, X percent are are people of color and we don't see that represented on your stages. Like, why is that the case? We need to address that. So I've seen it like progress, get even better, better, you know, especially 2016, 2018, really started seeing more of it. And then the pandemic came again, uh, the stages went dark, but the work never stopped. And now... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like we are, especially with trans issues being kind of in the forefront due to, uh, fantastic people in politics, um, right. Trying to, trying to curtail LGBTQ, um, rights and and things of that nature. Now we have to, we're seeing a lot more emphasis, especially as we rally around those groups, like we're rallying around them and bringing those to the forefront. So I, I see it getting better. Like I really am happy to see how much diversity there truly is now and how much more acceptable and how much more it's being embraced. Where do we need to work? Uh, I'm going to say leadership, right? I still think that the leadership still is not there yet. And and the financial backing behind some of these groups probably needs to also be taken a look at because that's true. Because too. a lot of the backing that we see are still, are still, in my opinion, um, not representative of the people that are doing the work. And so you're going to have to answer to the people giving you money at this point. So I think if we could get leadership and that kind of aligned, I think that we'll see even greater strides. And then we won't have to do these things anymore because it will be normal at that point. Like there's no mm-hmm. question about it. It's not this divisive line. And if I can pontificate a little bit more, uh, like, like, <laughs> like uh, I don't know if you felt this way, I mentioned like I'd show up to a room and it'd be, I'd be the one of like two people of, of color. Right. 
uh, there. I think the tokenization has also improved in the sense of like, we're not as token anymore as it used to be. It used to like what I would constantly feel when I would go to auditions or I would see shows or be a part of a show was like, I was the, I was the diversity hire. Like they don't really want me here, but because I fit certain boxes, like I got hired, you know, or I got accepted to do this thing. I don't say they basically just wanted to say, Hey, look, we have a Hispanic person. We're inclusive. Right. right. And I don't feel that as much as I used to. And again, I might be in a different place, but I, I don't, I feel that there's more genuine want now than there was in the past. I don't know if that's the same case for you. No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, I think there's more effort to open more doors. And I think the more people raise their voices, the more we start to see change happen. Yeah. And I think that's true with a lot of things. I mean, the more you raise your voice, the more change happens because, you know, you have to keep raising your voice and you have to keep being loud enough and you have to not give up on it either. And and, with that said, like there's still stuff that I need to get better at. (laughs) There's stuff that even I, there are biases. I'm sure that are baked in the way I operate that I still need to work on and get better at. And, And again, all these movements have really had me reflect on who am I as a person? Who am I as culturally? How do I fit? And what can I do to be better? Um, so yeah, I hope that's a long way to answer your question there of like why it's so Latino centric. No, but I love it. It, it. It's a great genuine answer. I, I I love it. I love it. You also perform online on the grid. Yes. What is that experience like, and what differences do you see between performing live on stage and performing online? Other than the obvious, yeah. of course. Um. So yeah. So the grid is our or now bi monthly. Uh, show and you're supposed to say bi-weekly but then i looked it up and now bi-monthly and bi-weekly mean the same thing it happens every other week they change the definition and i will thank uh uh, scott mcfarland of uh, spider-man fame uh for bringing that to uh to my my attention anyway point is um yeah, we, we started the grade again out of the pandemic to perform online just to give ourselves a place to play until it was over. Um, to answer your question, um, what what I really enjoy the online because it still allows me to do certain things that I can never do in the real world. Uh, primarily, I can uh, do avatar switches. I can play. I can do cool little, you know, uh, putting on digital masks and digital costumes. Um, there are green screen effects that I could never do in the real world that I would love to do, you know, that, that I've seen on TV. Um, so I, having that experience has been great of like exploration and being bound by the fact that I'm not in the same room with a bunch of people. Like that's another challenge of like, how do you make, how do you communicate? How do you connect with people who are physically not in the same room or miles apart from each other and yet be able to create some kind of joy in the space that everybody can be artistic in. I've really enjoyed that Um, as opposed to like being in the real world. Like it's a double-edged sword again. It's like you missed, I I know I missed it during the pandemic of not being in the room with other people. That is still new to me. It's still, I still am so appreciative of the fact that like I was able to do a show last night with a group of 15 people. Like, Oh my gosh, it's still novel to me because I remember like just how, crushing it was that we couldn't do what we wanted to do in its native format. Um, so 
you know, I think it's also been fun to figure out taking what we do in the real world and doing it online. How do you do a Foursquare, you know, doing Zoom? How do you do um, a, a new choice doing Zoom? Like, what are what are the entrance? What does entrances and exits look like? What is theater supposed to look like? Is does this make sense? Mm-hmm. And what is going to make this more compelling? than the stuff that you're watching on Netflix or you're watching on a streaming service. Why would you want to watch this over those items? What are some of those things that, that, that you can do to make it better? And so like all that production, all that thought, I didn't ha- even, I've never, I haven't thought about any of that stuff when I was doing it live. I never thought about like production was like, okay, lights up, lights down, uh, some music, cool, uh, maybe a piano player, good, like we're good. And it really got me thinking of like, man, we got to like step up our game because we're not, we are competing against some forces that have millions of dollars behind them. And this is, uh, at the time, even pre-pandemic, it felt like we was a dying form, right? And the, the oh, pandemic yeah. came along and then we were competing with those same people and people have just flourished under that. And again, the advent of, of kind of the web 3.0 stuff of TikTok and Reels and all this other stuff, like people are really, really digging into it. VR stuff, like all that stuff is is definitely the future. I see it happening. And I'm just glad that we've been able to continue practicing, getting our reps in, dealing with the with the uh, um, the limitations of the art form, and then having to uh, adjust and improvise, no pun intended, around that so that we can um, present a product that is uh, consumable. You know, it's interesting that, like you, so many of us performed online during the pandemic. And then after we were able to get back outside again, a lot of us just kind of left the online stuff alone. But it's interesting that you made the conscious decision to keep it going and let it continue. Full transparency. I tried killing it a number of times. I did. I did. <laughs> did you I really? Did. I really did. And not because not because I didn't want to do it. I tried killing it because for the same reason that you said I know how uh, alluring it is to be in a room with another person. I see it. Mm-hmm. I can feel it because I want to do it too. And so I would I'd go to the cast and be like, hey, like, you know, do you, do you want to stop? And they're like, no. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, no, we're cool. Like, <laughs> let's keep going. So I have to really give credit to the cast because there were a number of times I was just like, hey, you know, I had a cast of maybe 10 people of which maybe five could perform on any kind of regular, any kind of regularity. Right. And the rest of them were off doing all the stuff in the real world. And I'm like, is this worthwhile to you? And they're all saying, yes, it is worthwhile to me. I can't do it every week, obviously, but I still see value in what we're doing here. And I was like, okay, cool. So I book every two months is the way I do it. And I tell them we have to have a minimum of four people to play to have a show that weekend. Um, and you know, We've been lucky. I, I feel so grateful that we've been able to keep it going with, um, and, and new people keep asking to be a part of it, which is like even more mind blowing. So I'm like, dude, you realize like down the street, you got a theater company. Like you could totally go do this in the real world. And they're like, yeah, but we like you guys. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll take it. I'd be more than happy to take you on. So I, I feel so grateful that, that my cast is, is really pushed to continue with the grid. And I, I not honestly, I thought this was a two month thing, not a three over a three year thing. <laughs> so no matter how hard you try, it will yeah. not. Every die. time I get out, just 
Pull me back in. Pull me back in. <laughs> well, it sounds like the appeal is more towards the people than than the format of it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think I would say so. I you know, I have a, a really steady, I have a rock solid group of people who do, do the grid on the weekly. Uh, I'll shout them out. Ron, Lisa, Zaney are kind of the, the rock of of the group because they'll do anything. They're like they'll do anything I ask them to do, and it, and it's I'm so grateful they're so open to it and so willing to do it. And we just have fun. It's not, it's one rehearsal. Like if we don't, as long as we vouch for you as a personality and you can deal with the kinds of things that we do with the grid, um, you know, it is, it is definitely, you know, a PG 13, uh, R kind of thing. You know, we, we do get a bit risque on the show. If you can handle that, um, one rehearsal and then you play, it's like, it's not a time suck. It is not, and, and we don't want to be online for two hours on front of our computers and just not have a good time, right? Uh, as Susan Messing says, if you're not having a good time, you're the asshole, right? So right. that's that's kind of the way we take about it. And I think that's really that's really uh, hopefully for for those folks who have been a part of it, like they they really treasure, treasure the fact that they have that kind of space to just play, not a big time suck, and we laugh a lot and we get dumb. That is so amazing. That is so amazing. As you look back at your journey and what you went through and what you've learned and what you've experienced and seeing where you're at now, what reflections come to mind? Reflections. Um, yeah. Ask me that question again. <laughs> that question sure. Again. Yeah, what do you mean by reflections? Well, just what are some things that you reflect on as you look back on, on your journey and everything that you've gone through and from where you started to where you are now? And you can answer that both as a performer and as a human being. Okay, sure. Um, wow. I, 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 uh, I, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what are my reflections? Um, I can see a lot going on right now. Well, I, I'm trying to paint it in a very you know, nice way. Like, I, I think definitely, okay, oh, okay, I got it. So I think what I've learned over the years um, is to value yourself. I think that's, know what you're worth. Know what you're worth. And, and that means kind of metaphorically and literally uh, what you're worth. Um I tend to skew, I have this weird Midwest guilt that goes on. Like, I'm not allowed to <laughs> love everything I do too much because then it turns into hubris and I feel guilty about it. And and then the people are like, you're not that good. You know, like that that is a constant thing in the back of my head any given time. But the thing I did learn over my journey was that I had to learn what I was worth at the time and maybe even into the future. So what does that mean? What it means is that um, the advice I kind of give to some of my students and some of the, some of the people I run into, they, they come to me for career advice and they'll be like, Hey, do I really need to take this class or do I really need to take this, this, um, uh, you know, a program or whatever. And I'll be like, uh, what do you want to get done? I'm like, okay, maybe I'm spending that $1,200 that you would spend on that program, maybe you dump that into buying some equipment and doing it yourself. Or maybe, um, or, or in another place where uh, a couple of friends of mine were offered a show 
of their own. And I'm kind of like, make sure that you're being offered that show because they want you, not because they tolerate you. Right. And that sense of like, you need to know what your worth is, is really, really strong with me. And, and, and it's for my whole life has always been this struggle of like, am I being compensated either, either professionally or monetarily or artistically to, do, am I being valued at any given moment? And if I'm not being valued, is it because I'm not putting, I'm not giving them a reason to value me, right? Am I putting the effort to to get that value? Or is it just because, hey, there are other factors that are out of my control and uh, I need to do something about it? And I think if you can kind of answer that question in your own journey, that will make your journey a lot less arduous than mine. And that's what I try to help, at least with my students, I try to help them with like, I will give you the guru answers for improv and all that stuff. And I will always give you the, here's my experience with it in the real world and how that happened in my journey. Try to avoid the the same pitfalls that I went through because it took me a good 10 years to figure out what my worth was at that time. And after the 10th year, like everything started clicking. I didn't have to do certain shows. I didn't have to be on a boat. I didn't have to tour. I didn't have to be on the main stage because I built all this value for the last 10 years doing stuff independently. And I was like, yeah, like that's the way we need to roll with things. We all have worth and we, we need to really exploit it. So I think that's, that's my main reflection and kind of ties my journey and the journey I'm still on uh, to this day, like figure out what that is at any given moment and, and making the most of it. Incredible. Thank you so much for that. Nelson, I got one final question for you, yes, my sir. friend. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Uh, wow. I think I, I think I answered that already. No. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, again, I think, I think for me, the, the one piece of advice, again, is going to be uh, find what's yours and hold on to it. And I, I, I'm really big into, I think that will serve you better than anything else. So again, if you've got a project that is yours. In other words, like this is yours from top to bottom. If you can find that one, two, three, however many things that are yours that you can hold on to that nobody can take away from you from an artistic perspective, from a, from an institution perspective, from anywhere else, man, go do it. That, that, that's what you need to dump time and effort into. And that's going to make you grow and make you stronger. So that way you can work with these other groups so that you are, uh, again, valued uh, at that moment and that you are satisfied um, from a personal perspective. So find your own thing, hold on to it, work with it. Buddy, this has been a great time. Thank you so much, Nelson. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you and best of luck and wish you all the success in the world. I appreciate being on here. Thank you so much, Nelson, for spending time with me today. And thank you for reminding all of us to keep holding on to that thing that motivates us. Nelson Velasquez is an amazing person, and I hope you all get to check out his incredible shows. Learn about his company, Improductions LLC, by visiting improductionsllc.com and learn about the very popular Los Improviachis at losimproviachis.com. And 
Don't forget to check out my website, TogetherByMyself.com, to learn about my solo improv show and how you can contact me to perform and teach workshops at your theater, class, venue, hidden fortress, wherever you like. I'm currently in the process of creating a new website which will incorporate both my improv and my magic. I'll share more info about that once that's ready, so stay tuned for that. It's always a pleasure to share this time with you, my friends. Be well and hold on to your passion. Until next time, I'm L.D. Madeira, and this is Improv and Magic. Bye now.